Welcome to Sketches from Church History, our reading of S.M. Houghton's uh, quick synopsis of uh, the history of the church. Uh, today we're going to be doing chapter 30, The Huguenots of France, but before we get started, let us begin with a word of prayer. God, our Father, as we contemplate uh, the work that you did in France in bringing gospel light there, we pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you would give us uh, an understanding of your hand in history. Sometimes it is not your will that the, uh, the work would come forward in a particular area. Sometimes the, the light increases, waxes, and other times it wanes. And certainly, although, Lord, the, uh, the struggle of your people in that particular country was, was brave uh, and indeed inspiring, we know, Lord, ultimately uh, the reformation of that country did not take place. Allow us then to remember that your work is done regardless of the outcome of things. Sometimes uh, a work succeeds, sometimes it does not. And yet, O oh Lord, your hand uh, is not stayed and your, um, your intentions uh, all come to pass. O oh Lord, help us and uh, teach us today. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Chapter 30, The Huguenot of France from S.M. Houghton's Sketches from Church History. As in the case of England, religious affairs in 16th century France were closely linked with the occupant of the throne. When Lutheran teachings began to enter France, the king was Francis I. He was three years younger than Henry VIII of England, and in character very similar to him. Like Henry, he took pride in patronizing men of letters, though probably he paid little attention to the learned Jacques Lefebvre, who had been called the father of the French Reformation. At first, Francis I regarded the Reformation as a struggle of mind against a very conservative church, but he had no real sympathy with Protestant teachings and his outlook was far from spiritual. In 1516, for political reasons, he made a concordat with the Pope and before long, Frenchmen who leaned towards Luther and later towards Calvin knew that their lives were imperiled. In our chapter on Calvin, it was mentioned that the Genevan reformer, himself a Frenchman, uh, da, 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 dedicated his institutes to Francis I in the hope that persecution might be averted. Of course, that did not happen. Hey, Cindy, how are you? But as Lutheran teachings gained adherence, Francis became the more furious, and many were burned at the stake. By 1545, thousands had been killed or sent to the galleys, and 22 towns and villages had virtually been destroyed. Dying in the same year as Henry VIII, 1547, Francis was succeeded on the throne by his son, Henry II, who had married Catherine de Medici, uh, Medici, an Italian. For ten years she bore her husband no children, but subsequently she had seven, of whom three successively were kings of France. Henry II carried on his father's policy with even more ardor. A special committee of the French Parliament was formed called Le Chambre Ardente, uh, the burning chamber from the number of its victims. To escape, not a few fled to Geneva, which became thronged with refugees. Young men of courage trained in Geneva often returned to France at the risk of their lives to distribute books and tracts. Send us wood, Calvin had said to his fellow countrymen, and we will send you back arrows. He meant, of course, that in Geneva, men would be trained to spread Reformation doctrine effectively. The French king fought back by forbidding peddlers to sell books. Unlettered persons were forbidden to discuss religious matters at home or at work among neighbors. Printers were regularly visited by government agents. All packages entering France from beyond the frontiers were inspected. Nevertheless, Reformation work and witness continued secretly when necessary, publicly when the king's authority was weak. 
1559, Henry II met his death at a tournament, his temple being pierced by a lance, which he failed to avoid. From about the year 1560, French Protestants were known as Huguenots. Their name and their creed alike came from Geneva. Uh, certain Genevan patriots were known as, I, I'm going to massacre this, Eidgenossen, sorry, uh, or Confederates. And this time, name seems to have been translated to French refugees in that city. From them, it spread speedily throughout France, not that the Huguenots were evenly distributed. Their chief strength lay in the area bounded on the north by the river Loire and by the rivers Rhone and Saône on the east, sorry, uh, with Normandy and Dauphiné as outposts. Socially, they had numerous followers among the lesser nobility, tradesmen, and professional men in the lower middle class. Very few of the great noblemen joined them, and similarly, the mass of the peasantry remained solidly Catholic. Paris itself, influenced by its famous university, it had 65 colleges, and its great religious houses, remained a papal stronghold. The chief Huguenot leaders were Louis de Bourbon, Prince of Condé, and Gaspard de Coligny, uh, Admiral of France, though he never commanded on the sea, the military hero of the French Reformation. Condé was slain in battle in 1569. On the Catholic side, members of the Guise family, who were related to the king, were the chief leaders, particularly Francis de Guise and Charles, a cardinal of the Roman Church. The death of Henry II brought his son to the throne as Francis II, a youth of 16 who had married, uh, married Mary, Queen of Scots. Before long, however, he died of a disease of the year and was replaced by his brother Charles IX, a boy of 10. Catherine de' Medici, his mother, then became regent of France. At the time of her husband Henry II's death, she had been left with a family of five children was determined to protect their interests against the Guises on the one hand and the Bourbons on the other. The Bourbons had married into the important house of Navarre, a kingdom on the frontier with Spain, and were represented by their uh, Prince Henry, a friend of Coligny and um, a Huguenot, though not a man of deep religious convictions. One of the things that... Um, uh, the House of Navarre was a uh, was a Protestant household, and we're going to see how that was uh, uh, tremendously influential in the way things fell out. I must apologize at this point in time. Uh, while <laughs> while I took German in high school, and don't always uh, massacre the, uh, the the German language, and I, I know a little Latin, um, and of course I took Greek and Hebrew in uh, in seminary. Uh, French has always escaped me. It's always been a language whose pronunciations I just I I can't get. Um, so I do apologize to any French speakers who may be watching this. Uh, I, I know I'm I'm destroying these names. Forgive me. Shortly. <laughs> can imagine how if I had uh, read the uh, I did, if I had uh, read the uh, the Scotland uh, uh, section and called him Canucks or something like that it would probably be the uh, the equivalent of what I'm doing with the uh, the French names shortly after 1560 a period of religious wars which lasted on and off for 30 years set in for France into the details of these wars we cannot here enter but we concentrate attention on the lights and shadows of the period incidentally uh, the three musketeers the famous uh, story actually um, takes place at the time in the 1600s when uh, the French nobility were still uh, engaged in a, a life-or-death struggle from their point of view uh, with the uh, uh, with the French Protestants, the Musketeers obviously were um, agents of the French Crown, 
uh, or uh, they were part of the, the French military forces that were arrayed against the Huguenots, so no friends of, uh, of us Protestants. Moving on. Um, okay. I'm going to go back. Shortly after 1560, a period of religious wars which lasted on and off for 30 years set in for France. Into the details of these wars we cannot here enter, but we concentrate our attention on the lights and shadows of the period. At the center of action was Catherine de' Medici, and although at the beginning she seemed to wish to maintain a balance of power between Protestant and Catholic forces, it soon became clear that her ultimate aim was to crush the Huguenots. Now, Catherine de' Medici was uh, a member of the famous Florentine uh, de' Medici family, so these were uh, politicians of the highest caliber in the sense of, uh, of being willing to uh, engage in maneuver and whatever subterfuge was necessary in order to get over their enemies. Uh, Catherine hated Protestants, but um, uh, she bided her time and waited for the balance, uh, balance of fire, uh, power to shift and for people to actually believe that she wasn't going to do something, and then she sprung her trap, as we shall see later on. Craftily, she hit upon a plan to gain her object, to cement a treaty between the two parties. She proposed that the Catholic Princess Margaret, the sister of King Charles IX, should be given in marriage to Henry de Bourbon, the new Huguenot King of Navarre. All the notables of the land were invited to Paris, where the marriage was to take place. Among them was Admiral Coligny. Uh, the Huguenots were not aware of the trap that was being set for them. Before the festivities were f which followed the wedding were over, there occurred one of the most hideous crimes recorded in history. The date was St. Bartholomew's Day, 24th August, 1572. On the evening of that day, Catherine went to her son, the king, and told him that the Huguenots had formed a plot to assassinate the royal family and the leaders of the Catholic party, and that to prevent the utter ruin of their house and cause, it was absolutely necessary to slay all Protestants within the city walls. Catherine had prepared a document to this effect, and she presented it to the king for signature in order to make it an official document. The weak-minded king at, few, at first refused to contemplate such a dreadful crime against a section of his subjects, but finally, pressed by his mother, he yielded and exclaimed, I consent, but then not one of the Huguenots must remain alive in France to reproach me with the deed, and what you do, do quickly. Those were the words, of course, of Christ to Judas. What you do, do quickly. Uh, his conscience, obviously, was pricking him, and despite the fact that most of the Huguenots in the city were going to be killed the next day, uh, it, his conscience would uh, reproach him for the rest of his life. The Paris mob was to be given a free hand. Only Henry of Navarre, the bridegroom on the occasion, was to be spared. At midnight, August 24th, the castle bell tolled. This was the signal for the horrible butchery to begin. Coligny was one of the first victims. When the hordes appeared and stormed his house, he realized what was about to happen. Friends, said he to his companions, flee and save your lives. I, for one, am ready to die, and I trust myself to God's mercy. Some of his friends escaped. Thirsting for blood, the crowd faced the calm, dignified admiral, a young man taking the lead. Are you Coligny, he asked. I am. Uh, I am he, was the response. Young man, reverence my gray hairs. A stab with a saber was the answer. Mortally wounded, the body was hurled to the pavement in response to the command that came from the courtyard below. While Coligny's dead body lay there, Henry of Guise stooped down, looked at the admiral, and said, I recognize him. It is he himself. Then, kicking the gentle face, he went out gaily encouraging his followers. Come, soldiers, take courage. We have begun well. Let us go to find others. For so the king commands. 
The body of the Huguenot leader was treated shamefully. The head was cut off and carried to Catherine and Charles. It was afterwards embalmed and sent to Rome as a present for Pope Gregory Thirteenth. The hands were also cut off, and for three days the trunk was dragged around the streets of Paris by a band of brutal youths. For three days and nights the massacre continued within the city. Thousands were put to death. Orders were issued to the cities of France to purge themselves of heretics. In many places this degree was disobeyed, but in others it was carried out and frightful massacres took place. Philip II of Spain received the news with undisguised joy, for the massacres agreed with his own line of policy. Queen Elizabeth of England expressed disapproval, but decided not to quarrel with France because of her dread of Spain. Gregory XIII was so overjoyed that he commanded a salute to be fired, all the church bells to be rung, and a grand te deum to be sung. For three nights Rome was illuminated. The Pope also had a medal struck in honor of the victory of the church. It included an angel carrying a sword and a cross, but says the famous Frenchman Sully, uh, French statesman Sully, the outrage was followed by 26 years of disaster, carnage, and horror. I would actually go further than that. The um, uh, failure of France to join the Reformation had uh, a number of far-reaching consequences. One of them was um, the inability of the French uh, to produce any sort of political reforms. The, uh, the Huguenots, um, the leading lights in essence in France, uh, were extinguished. And as a result, uh, French political development um, did not proceed as it had in England and in Holland, uh, where Reformation had brought about, um, uh, in essence, um, a much more stable society with a, uh, a much larger middle class. France never developed the same kind of mercantile middle class that Fran uh, England and Holland did. And as a result, you had the very poor and the very rich, uh, the two sides of society, and an increasingly revolutionary element boiling uh, within it. Uh, there was no no means of a natural development uh, of the state. And the, the church, uh, in essence, ended up not only cutting the throats of the Huguenots, but cutting their own throats, because eventually those revolutionaries, um, that revolutionary pressure was released at the end of the 1700s with the French Revolution. And this uh, involved also not only the removal of the arist uh, aristocracy from power, but the removal of the, the church from power. The, uh, the priests also suffered at the hands of the revolutionary mob. Um, so ultimately, the uh, Huguenots were avenged by subsequent events as uh, France uh, destroyed itself, having failed to reform. Many of the Huguenots uh, ended up emigrating, as I said yesterday, to the United States. One of the most famous of the uh, Huguenots being um, uh, a, uh, a, a silversmith named Rivoire, who renamed himself Revere in order to anglicize his name. He settled in Boston in Massachusetts. And, of course, his son Paul Revere was uh, uh, renowned for riding around saying, the Redcoats are coming, the Redcoats are coming. So American history was affected positively by the immigration of Huguenots. Most of the Huguenots, incidentally, who left France and came to the United States, there was no French Reformed Church uh, in the U.S. for them to join. So they ended up, um, by and large, joining the Presbyterian churches. So um, men like uh, Girardot, uh, who was a descendant of, um, uh, of Huguenots, a uh, great Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian theologian, also... A man we know is Dabney, whose uh, family name was probably Daubigny, uh, who came to, uh, uh, whose family came to the United States as well. R. L. Dabney was another uh, descendant of Huguenots. There were many 
such cases as that. But um, as I said, they uh, they formed a uh, a wonderful um, nucleus of, of new life uh, and new light within the United States. France, unfortunately, snuffed that light out with terrible consequences. In any event, uh, thank you for listening. I will see you, God willing, tomorrow where we will discuss Chapter 31, The French Crown and the Huguenots, uh, specifically the story after the terrible St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Farewell, everyone.